Section 1. This book has something to say about practical results of wiser police administration in New York. It is respectfully dedicated to Honorable William J. Gaynor, Mayor of New York City, the official who took the initiative in improving conditions. Preface There are several reasons for this little book, but the best of all is the main reason that it is a cracking good story and right out of life. The characters will be found interesting, and they are real people, every one of them. The incidents are full of action and color. The plot has mystery, surprise, interplay of mind and motive. Had a novelist invented it, the reader might declare it improbable. This is the kind of story that is fundamental, the kind Mr. Chesterton says is so necessary to plain people that, when writers do not happen to write it, plain people invent it for themselves in the form of folklore. But apart from the story interest, there are other reasons. When the New York Police Department had run down all the threads of the plot, and accounted for most of the characters by locking them up, they had become so absorbed in the story themselves, as a story, that they thought the public would enjoy following it from the inside. While the crime was being dealt with, the police were subjected to pretty severe criticism. They felt that the facts would make it clear that they knew their trade and had been working at it diligently. The story gives an insight into real police methods. These are very different from the methods of the fiction detective, and also from the average citizen's idea of police work. They ought to be better known. When the public understands that there is nothing secret, tyrannical, or dangerous in good police practice, and that our laws safeguard even the guilty against abuses, there will be helpful public opinion behind officers of the law and we shall have a higher degree of order and security. The directing mind in this case was that of Commissioner George Doherty, executive head of the detectives of the New York Police Department. Thousands of clean, ambitious young fellows are constantly putting on the policeman's uniform all over the country and rising to places as detectives and officials. The manufacturer or merchant may find himself in the police commissioner's chair. Even the suburbanite, with his bundles, may be, out at Lonesomehurst, a member of the village council, and thus responsible for the supervision of a police force that, though it be only two patrolmen and a chief, is important in its place. So, in writing the story, there has been an effort to show how a first-rate man like Commissioner Doherty works. His methods are plain business methods. Most of his life he has earned his living following the policeman's trade as a commercial business. What he did in a case of this kind, and how, and why, are matters of general interest and importance. Finally, the story throws some useful light on criminals. It shows the cunning of the underworld, and also its limitations. To free the law-abiding mind of romantic notions about the criminal, and show him as he is, 
is highly important in the prevention of crime. The Cast Gino Montani, a taxicab proprietor. Wilbur Smith, an elderly bank teller. Frank Wardle, a 17-year-old bank office boy. Eddie Kinsman, alias Collins, alias Eddie the Boob, a hold-up man. Billy Keller, alias Dutch, a hold-up man. Gene Splain, a hold-up man. Scotty the Lamb, a thieves helper or stall. Joe Philadelphia, alias The Kid, a runner for thieves or lobby gal. James Pasquale, alias Jimmy the Push, keeper of shady resorts known as 208 and 233. Bob Delio, partner of Jimmy the Push. Jess Albrazo, a middleman, formerly keeper of the Arch Cafe, pal of Montani, Jimmy the Bush, and Bob Delio. Matteo Abrano, Polly Gonzalez, Charles Cavagnaro, the Three Brigands. King Dodo, a Bowery character. Rhinelander Waldo, police commissioner of New York. George S. Doherty, second deputy police commissioner, executive head of detectives. Inspector Edward P. Hughes, in command of detective bureau. Police Lieutenant Dominic G. Riley, aide of Commissioner Doherty's staff. Detective Sergeant John J. O'Connell, official stenographer. The detectives on plants, trailing, surrounding, arresting, etc. John P. Barron, Edward Boyle, Frank Campbell, James Dalton, James J. Finnan, John W. Finn, Joseph A. Daly, Daniel W. Clare, John Gaynor, Anthony Greco, John P. Griffith, Daniel F. Hallahan, Edward Lennon, Henry Muggy, Richard Oliver, Gustavus J. Riley, James F. Shevlin, Joseph Toner, George Trojan, James A. Watson. Swede Annie, Kinsman's Sweetheart. Myrtle Horn, a pal of Annie. Rose Levy, a newcomer in Thompson Street, Jess Albrazzo's girl. Mrs. Isabella Goodwin, a police matron. Mrs. Sullivan, keeper of a West Side rooming house. Josie, a lady of the Levy District, Chicago. Detectives, policemen, informants, witnesses, denizens of the underworld, newspaper reporters, trainmen, ticket sellers, etc., etc. Place, chiefly in New York, with scenes in Chicago, Albany, Memphis, Boston, and Montreal. Time, February and March, 1912. The Great Taxicab Robbery Chapter 1 What the Public Heard About the Crime On Thursday, February 15, 1912, the New York Evening Papers had a startling news story. 
Between ten and eleven o'clock that morning, two messengers were sent in a taxicab from the East River National Bank at Broadway and Third Street to draw $25,000 in currency from the Produce Exchange National Bank at Broadway and Beaver Street in the downtown financial district and bring it uptown. This transfer of money had been made several times a week for so long a period without danger or loss that the messengers were unarmed. One of them, Wilbur F. Smith, was an old man who had been in the service of the bank thirty-five years, and the other was a mere boy named Wardle, seventeen years old. The taxicab man, an Italian named Gino Montani, seemed almost a trusted employee, too, for he operated two cabs from a stand near the bank and was frequently called upon for such trips. While the cab was returning uptown through Church Street with the money, five men suddenly closed in upon it. According to the chauffeur's story, a sixth man forced himself to slacken speed by stumbling in front of the vehicle. Immediately, two men on each side of the cab opened the doors. Two assailants were boosted in and quickly beat the messengers into insensibility while their two helpers ran along on the sidewalk. The fifth man climbed onto the seat beside the chauffeur, held a revolver to his ribs, and ordered him to drive fast on peril of his life. This fellow seemed to be familiar with automobiles, and threatened the driver when he tried to slacken speed. That is a busy part of the city yet nobody on the sidewalks seemed to notice anything out of the ordinary. The cab dodged vehicles, going at high speed for several blocks. At Park Place and Church Street, after a trip of eleven blocks, at a busy corner, the chauffeur was ordered to stop the cab, and the three robbers got down, carrying the $25,000 in a leather bag, ran quickly to a black automobile without a license number which was waiting for them, and in a few moments were gone. That was the substance of the story. Information came chiefly from the chauffeur, because the two bank employees had been attacked so suddenly and viciously that they lost consciousness in a moment. When the chauffeur looked inside his cab after the crime, he said he saw them both lying senseless and bleeding. They could give no description of the assailants. Eyewitnesses were found who had seen men loitering in the neighborhood where the cab was boarded shortly before the crime, but their descriptions were not very useful. That night, the New York evening papers published accounts of the crime under great black headlines and on the following morning every news items of a criminal nature was grouped in the same part of the papers to prove that the city had entered one of its sensational waves of crime. And for more than a week the public read criticism and denunciation of the police force. It was charged that the police had become demoralized, and various changes of administrative policy introduced into the department within the past eight months were blindly denounced. 
The most important of these changes was that devised by Mayor Gaynor. Eight or ten years ago, every uniformed policeman in New York carried a club, and often used it freely in defending himself while making arrests. Abuses led to the abolition of this means of defense, except for officers patrolling the streets at night. There were still undoubted abuses, however, and when Mayor Gaynor came into office, bringing well-thought-out opinions of police administration from his experience as a magistrate on the bench, he took a determined stand for more humane methods of making arrests, and strict holding of every policeman to the letter of the laws. Every case of clubbing was prosecuted, the plain legal rights of citizens or criminals upheld, and the police department began teaching its men new ways of defending themselves by skillful holds in wrestling, whereby prisoners may be handled effectually and without doing them harm. Sentiment against the use of the club began to grow in the police department itself, it being recognized that clubbing was an unskillful means of defense, and that special athletic devices were more workmanlike. Now, however, the newspapers published every chance opinion of discharged, retired, and anonymous police officers who objected to the new regulations. It was alleged that criminals had got out of bounds because policemen no longer dared club them into good behavior, and the editors, without paying much attention to the many good points of the new regulations, or trying to understand the merits of a settled policy applied to an organization of more than 10,000 men, set up a cry for the presumably good old days of Inspector so-and-so and Chief this and that when every known criminal was promptly struck over the head on sight and thereby taught to know his place. If the files of New York journals for those days following the robbery are examined, they will reveal a curious exhibition of pleading for official lawlessness and autocracy. Another point of criticism centered on a new method adopted in the distribution of the detective force. This comprises more than 500 men. For years they were all required to report at police headquarters every day, coming from distant precincts, and had an opportunity to see whatever professional criminals were under arrest. Then they went back to different precincts to work. This took too much time, it was found, and the old-fashioned line-up of criminals was chiefly a spectacle the same offenders dropping into the hands of the police with more or less regularity. So detectives were redistributed on a plan that attaches a proper number of plainclothes policemen to each precinct, according to its needs, and in those precincts the men live and become acquainted with local criminals. Many of them work in sections where they were born, and detectives speaking foreign languages are assigned to foreign quarters. The newspapers charged that red tape had brought the police department to such a low state that young detectives had no idea what a real criminal looked like, and urged the restoration of the old system with its picturesque lineup.
In the days of Inspector Burns, when practically all the banking of the city was done around Wall Street, the police established a deadline beyond which criminals were supposed not to operate. In its day, the deadline was real enough, undoubtedly, but it was not necessarily an ideal police measure, and the growth of the city has long made it a mere memory, living only in newspaper tradition. Today, banking extends as far north as Central Park, and millions upon millions of dollars are being carried about daily by people of every sort. Despite the fact that the last loss of money from a New York bank through professional criminals, apart from fraud and forgery, dated back some fifteen or eighteen years, the newspapers seemed to agree that life and property were no longer safe in the city, because this purely mythical deadline had been disregarded by the robbers. There was other comment of the same character, and it had an immediate and grievous effect. On the day after the robbery, a chance remark about a safe in an east side bank, coupled with the general excitement, led to a run of its depositors, chiefly people of foreign birth. The bank was solvent, and the run was undoubtedly stimulated by gossip started by criminals for their own ends. But the frightened depositors insisted on drawing out their money and exposing themselves to danger of robbery and assault. The situation was met by careful police cooperation. About six months before the taxicab robbery, the New York legislature put into force a measure known as the Sullivan Law, providing penalties for the carrying of pistols and concealed weapons. This is unquestionably a wise measure fundamentally, and one that was badly needed for police administration and public safety. It is perhaps open to certain modifications to be made as actual conditions are encountered in practical working of the law. Newspaper opinion drew a connection between this law and the wave of crime, and its repeal was urged, so that every citizen might arm himself as he pleased. Hundreds of persons who had felt safe in going about their business unarmed now applied for permits to carry pistols. Fortunately, a sensation does not last long in New York. Though the police department felt this criticism keenly, and was hampered by it, pressure began to slacken in about a week. Other sensations came along. There was nothing to publish about the taxicab case, as police information was withheld for good official reasons. Presently, the town ventured to joke about the case. At an elaborate public dinner one night, among other topical effects, a dummy taxicab suddenly scooted out before the guests, held up a dummy police commissioner, took his watch, and scooted away again. The diners laughed, and that was fairly representative of the town, which was now ready to have its joke about the crime, too. Had there never been any further action by the police, the case would have quietly dropped out of sight. But, fortunately, there was police action, 
and with that we shall now deal. End of section 1